This podcast was made with Descript. Descript is a groundbreaking new media tool that allows creators to edit audio and video like a text document and create a realistic clone of their own voice for seamless edits. Please check out our Patreon at Asian Hustle Network. We want Asians to continue being meaningful and give back to the Asian community. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to contribute to our feature, we hope you become a patron. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. His name is Chris Ngo. Born in Thailand, Chris is the co-owner of The Leverage. The Leverage was founded by Chris Ngo and Ali Ramirez in 2012. From what began as a boutique men's streetwear agency has evolved to a vertically structured conglomerate built around wholesale and direct-to-consumer sales, in-house design, production, and distribution with eight portfolio brands, Embellish, House of Junior, Crisp, Carter Collection, Lifted Anchors, Club Paradise, Diet Starts Monday, and Richie Lee Collection, all self-funded and independently operated in No and Ramirez, hometown of Orange County, California. Chris, welcome to the show. You, you guys got that intro from the Forbes one, huh? Yeah, we did, we did. <laughs> you, know, you know what the best part about that? My sister, uh, my sister-in-law actually wrote that. So shout out to wow. Anna. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, she, it's, it's a beautiful intro. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. She actually, you know, shout out to her. She's actually the brand manager for Revolve. So we, oh, got like a whole, we have a whole family based, on, based around fashion at our house. Dude, awesome. just Maggie reading that intro, I got goosebumps right here. My own <laughs> chili is like freaking hot in here too. Yeah. But excited for you to be on, man. So Chris, tell, let's, hop, let's hop in real quick. Like, what was your upbringing like? Like, how did you begin this, this journey of yours and your hustle? I mean, the upbringing was kind of like, it, it's the same. You know, obviously, like we go into this whole refugee thing. My family came over on, on a boat. So it was pretty much my grandmother and my mom pretty much raised me since they were like, Forever. So pretty much, you know, my family immigrated over here, uh, got over here in 83. It was just my mom and my grandmother um, met my uh, met my stepfather uh, sharing a room in a house. So, you know, back in the day, there's this thing called we call Stefan. Right. So it's like you'd have a three bedroom apartment. My mom and my grandmother had one room. Um, my stepfather at that time was running another room. That's how my mom and my stepfather met, um, you know, grew up relatively <laughs> poor as shit. You know, what I'm saying welfare, all that. Um, and my mom, when she worked a bunch of jobs, she worked two jobs. And the biggest job that she, the job that she had for the longest time was she was, uh, she was a seamstress. Seamstress worked in a sweatshop. So she was like a factory worker. So she was doing, I want to say she was, she specialized in the double needle, uh, double needle. Um, so at that time, you know, when a lot of factories were out here in Orange County, she was doing stuff for, you know, Carl Kanai, uh, Jinko, Disney and all that stuff. But she was literally working in the factory. And back then in the factory, you get, used to get paid by per garment, you know? So, so yeah, I grew up around the factory, um, relatively, really poor, like I said, over and over. Um, Santa Ana, you know, one of the few Vietnamese kids out there with like, uh, I, I want to say there's might be four or five Vietnamese kids in the whole school. Everybody else was Mexican. So, you know, growing up in Santa Ana, I was just used to always being, you know, just pretty much used to being the only Vietnamese kid, Asian kid out there. Um, typically, typically that was it, you know, just uh, growing up, you don't realize you're poor until you get to like seventh grade. Mm -hmm. And so I get to seventh grade and this is when other kids are actually getting dropped off at school. You're not walking to school. Um, mm -hmm. Parents actually giving these kids like lunch money, you know? So for me, I was always used to uh, 
lunch tickets. And so, you know, I never paid for, I never paid for lunch. I thought that was normal. But then I realized, I was like, damn, you got lunch tickets because you're fucking poor, (laughs) you know? And so for me, um, uh, for me, my whole transition, it was like, you know, growing up in an area of Santa Ana, everyone was poor. And so you didn't realize that until, you know, you got to a certain age. And then when you get to high school, that's when you're like, okay, there's a separation between middle class, poor, and kids that are wealthy. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's, that story is really reminiscent of my family as well. I just remember, remember growing up, like my parents would take bags of like clothes, right? And they have to sew it on like these green sewing machines. Yes. You know the Jinko. The Jinko yeah. the G- the machines. That's yeah. it. Sure. That's it. Because like, you know, my mom had the same situation too, because back then we used to work at, um, she used to work at an actual um, sweatshop. And yeah. then obviously she Those was are real, welfare. man. Those are fucking real. Those are real. And she was on welfare. So she was getting paid in cash. And then she was like, if I get caught working here, then I'm going to lose our welfare. So then we, then my mom transitioned our whole garage into a little sweatshop. So she yeah. had these two machines there. And then, you know, every week they would just drop off like pallets of, not pallets, bags of clothes that are, you know, in little, uh, in little sections. So she would just sew parts of the clothes. Once yeah. you're done sewing parts of the clothes, then you would hand it off to the next person to put it together. So, so yeah, we grew up in the same exact way. And I'm and back then I'm sitting there helping her, you know, as a little kid, um, cutting off like the loose threads. Yeah. Uh, you remember the little, clip oh, yeah, thing, the the little, little clips. Yeah. I used to yeah. help my parents with that too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, we, I mean, I think being Vietnamese in the eighties and nineties, yeah. your parents are either doing that mm-hmm. or shit. What, doing that or doing nails you know Vietnamese yeah. people you're sewing or you're doing nails or you own a pho I'll, restaurant I'll describe my mom and dad okay my mom does nail my dad sews it's the same, th- same thing here same thing with us too yeah I mean it's 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 crazy to hear the humbling story the only difference in you and I is that you grew up fashionable and I grew up with no sense of fashion uh what, what city did you grow in I grow up in uh, I grew up in Monterey Park San bro oh nice 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 the SGEV yeah. uh, that area huh yeah, you literally make it through without knowing a lick of English, and you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but dude, we had Andy Nguyen on our podcast mm-hmm. before. He told your story. We didn't know you guys are that you were that Chris, the the mortgage yeah, Chris. You he know, was telling us about when he was doing his appraisal days, and we were listening to your other podcast, and we, we were like, "Wait a minute, is that the right Chris?" <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is, like, my life will always be my life and my career has always intertwined with Andy, whether we liked it or not, mm-hmm. because, like, you know, we grew up. You know, I was a little bit older than him, a couple years older than him, but I was always selling stuff like buy low, sell high. That's always, always everything I've done. Yeah. And like, you know, I met him selling sneakers and he was buying shoes for me. And then years later, he's doing real estate as an appraiser and I'm a loan officer. So, you know, <laughs> I'm calling Andy and then, you know, I don't want to snitch on myself, but we were doing some stupid ass shit as loan officers, you know, shit that probably I, I could probably go to jail for now, you know? <laughs> um, but the funny thing was like, you know, later on I get into fashion. I started a clothing brand, uh, you know, I started as a sales, a sales rep. He starts a clothing brand. Then, you know, I had this bright idea to sell multiple brands. I helped them out. And then, you know, I helped his, uh, I helped his company, uh, get to where it was in terms of the distribution side. So when, so when he launched, I'm King fucking eons years ago, I was a sales manager, 25, 26. And you gotta understand I was the oldest person at the office. Andy's like 23, 22 years old at the time. And it's just a bunch of young kids doing some stupid ass shit. No one knew what the hell we were doing. But you know, the thing is like all the mistakes that we made and like all the eras that we did, I mean, we learned from it, which was good. You know, obviously Andy and myself, you know, we grew up later on, you know, I stayed in fashion. 
you know, he, he got rounder and got into food, you know? So, so yeah, that was our intertwined. And like now, now, you know, now our business, um, I'm still in fashion and he's got a bunch of things going on too, but you know, we just kick off ideas. I think the biggest thing is like this whole Asian excellence, um, thing. Uh, I'm just, anybody that's Vietnamese, anybody that's doing it, I'm pushing them the same way. You know, I'm always been the type of person that's always going to clap on the sideline. If any, if I see somebody that's Vietnamese, Asian or anything doing it, I'll DM somebody be like, Hey man, I see what you're doing. I really like that. You know, that's how I, that's how I've met so many of these other entrepreneurs that are in this, like this whole Asian hustler network. Yeah. 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 That's, that's a good point. And so you said while you were growing up, you know, the area that you were growing up and you said that it was mostly like non-populated with a lot of Asians. How did that shape your Asian identity while you were growing up? I mean, you got to think about it. You're a Vietnamese kid, you know, eating a cup of noodles and like Mexican candy. It's just different, you know? And so, you know, I grew up, I grew up learning about elotes and, and like, uh, mangaladas and stuff like that too. And it was just like a different thing. Cause you're growing up with, you know, a lot of, a lot of other kids that aren't like you, they don't look like you, they have a different culture, they eat different food. And so it kind of mixes like your taste. And so that's the reason why I push this whole Santa Ana thing so much because I grew up eating, you know, um, carne asada burritos, tacos with, uh, with pho and like um, miwantan and stuff like that, you know? So, so it was, it was just what I, what I learned, you know, and I grew up around tag. I grew up, I grew up around a different uh, culture, uh, how people dressed. And so as a Vietnamese kid, I didn't dress like a normal kid. You know, I like one day I would dress big, big baggy pants. Next, next day I'll be in Cortez's and, um, and Dickies, you know, it was just like you know, the, the culture that you're around and the people you're around, you kind of learn from it. It kind of like, um, not stunt your growth, but you know, molded your growth. Right. right. Yeah. yeah I, I like that a lot. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> the similarities, dude. So I just asked Maggie, like what, what I prefer to eat on a daily basis. I always eat a shit ton of burritos. <laughs> it's the same way like, i grew up in a very uh latino area where you know all my friends growing up was latino but luckily like there's there's a lot of similarities between our cultures too like there's really not that much racism i didn't mm-hmm. feel racism until like, we got out of our circle we met other yeah. people from different states who were mm-hmm. like wow like we are a minority which is really weird you know mm-hmm. i know the, the weird thing about you know growing up in growing up in santa Ana, i didn't really consider it racism but you know if you're asian you're called chino you know it's just normal yeah. you know so i didn't really ever look at it like yo that's being racist i just thought that was normal because yeah. like growing up in the area we're at it's just like you know you got your pho restaurant and then down yeah. the street you got a uh you got a you got a taco shop you know yeah. um and it was just honestly growing up in that era, it was just normal. You know, it's just normal. It was just normal growing up. Yeah. yeah. And it's also, you know, we talk about that all the time because we grew up in places where it's populated with minority groups. You mm-hmm. know, until you go out to like the Midwest, it's like you finally realize that, wow, we are a minority. You know, yeah. I never knew. <laughs> 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 and he, honestly, and if you think about it, you know, there was like literally one white kid in my whole school. Yeah. So there's like one white kid in my school, majority is Mexican, you know, handful, five, six, seven Asian kids, but like one white person. And the only other white people are the teachers. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Out of curiosity, like how did fashion become, besides grow up around clothes and everything, how did that become your main hustle? Like how did you know you're super passionate about something like, I mean, you know, as, as a young child, I got into sneakers. I got, I got into basketball really young. So like I grew up playing basketball, loving basketball and just, cause at that age, you got to think basketball is the cheapest sport 
cheapest game you can play. It's a basketball on a court. You can play by yourself. It's not like football where you need a team. It's not like baseball where you need multiple players. Like literally it's just you and a hoop. You can play by yourself. And with that, I grew up idolizing Michael Jordan. I named my daughter Jordan. Right. And so idolizing Michael Jordan, the biggest thing is sneakers. Obviously Michael Jordan is probably the God, uh, the Godfather of, of urban streetwear or whatever because because if it wasn't for him and the whole Jordan brand we wouldn't be here today so you know I grew up collecting shoes um I was able to have one pair of shoes for the whole school year and so if you I had a one pair of shoes it's obviously gonna be a pair of Jordan literally I wore the shoe out to the point where I had like a hole in the bottom of the shoe where I put like a cardboard box in it just so I could finish the school year you know and so obviously you know idolizing shoes shoes and fashion just kind of went hand in hand Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. I think it's something that you touched upon earlier, too, is, you know, you failed over and over and over, but you still got back up. And and that's a huge trait of a successful entrepreneur. You know, a yeah. lot of entrepreneurs out there right now are so being they're so glorified that you think that you can't fail. But your approach is different. You know, you're like, it's OK to fail. Get back, get back up and learn some more about it. So I really appreciate that mindset. Um, and speaking about failures, too, what was your biggest breakthrough where you're hustling and you're learning, like, what was that moment where you're like, holy crap, like, I can get through to the next level, and this feels great. What was that, what was that stage of life? I honestly think, I honestly think is when me and my business partner, uh, Lee, um, you know, we don't talk about, like, a lot of the times people will ask me questions and stuff like that and talk about me, but, like, when I talk about our business, it's me and my business partner, Lee. I don't ever talk about him enough, but if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be in the same position as, as I am right now, too, because Easily, I would say he's my yin and I'm his yang. Um, but it was like this. I mean, we worked with Andy for a while. Um, this We worked with Andy for a while. And for us as sales reps, we get paid off a commission, you know, but shit happens, you know, obviously whatever we sell, we get a percentage of sales uh, for our commission. And then it got to the point where there was an issue with production. We pre-booked all this money out, you know, thinking that we were going to get paid X amount of money. And then only one fourth of the goods were produced because we didn't have enough capital to buy the other stuff. So me and my business partner are looking like, damn, you know, we book X amount of money, but how the hell are we going to survive now knowing the fact that we were only made one fourth of the commission. And so, you know, we sat, we sat there, we had all these relationships and everything too. And we're like, yo, you know what? It's time for us to kind of go on our own, uh, our own. We can't just represent one brand. And so me, so in the back of my mind, the leverage wasn't the first company I started as a sales agency. Um, that, Years before that, I had this whole thing called far from, uh, far from Filthy Distribution. It was me and a bunch of buddies. It didn't happen. But I still had the structure in my mind set up. But I just needed a partner that could uh, execute it well. And Lee was a perfect partner. And so what it was, was I was like, hey, listen, man, let's grab six or seven brands. Let's sell the six or seven brands to all the retailers we have relationships with. Instead of us, uh, you know, uh, banking on one brand for all of our commission, now we have six brands that we could probably eat off of depending on who has what and what we can sell. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, obviously our first, our first month in business, we did more money combined than we did last year uh, in business period. So that was the breakthrough. We're like, damn, man, for one whole year, we didn't do dick. We didn't make any money. We didn't do shit. So our first month of business, we're able to make more money than last year combined for both of us. And so that was the point where like, yo, why didn't we do this earlier? And so, you know, from that point on, you know, it became a situation where we're like, okay, well, you know, we're representing the brands now. What's the next goal? And so obviously for us, we wanted to eat the whole supply chain. So, okay, well, we're doing sales. Okay, now we want to own the brands. Next thing you know, we want to have the logistics company. Next thing you know, we want to have the marketing. 
then we want to own the sample room. Then we want to have our own um, back-end fulfillment company. And so yeah. that's how it was. We just kept on chipping away at every part of the supply chain. And then, you know, in about a week from now, we're about to close on our own commercial property. So oh. now, the, now, the, now the lease that we're renting is back to ourselves. We own it. That's amazing. Uh, we heard it on your other podcasts as, as well, but we want to emphasize that you – you you don't you didn't borrow any money for yeah, this. Yeah, you didn't huh? take in any investment. That is insane. Yeah. Can, can you talk a little bit about that process? Because you know we were hearing we were just flipping these businesses over and over again. And yeah. Any investment? So what was that process like? So the process was like what was easy for us was like okay how can we make the most money without putting out money, and you know obviously like that like like that it's just pretty much middlemaning, people people always underestimate like the power of the middleman. They put every project together, they dot every I, uh, they dot every I cross every single T. If without a middleman, no, no deal, no transaction happens. So we were just like, okay, well, if we do sales for a brand, we don't have to buy the product, we just sell the product, take a piece up top. And so me and my business partner for two years, we were just crushing it as sales reps. And so we saved all the money that we possibly did for the two years. And then we were like, okay, well, you know, we're getting 10, 15% uh, of the sale. We need to, we need to eat the other 80, 85%, you know? And so we're like, what do we do? We started our clothing brand. So me and him, we anteed up and we took out, you know, 40 K me, 40 K him. Um, and we started our first clothing brand, uh, first clothing brand, um, which was embellish. And, you know, we went in blind, we made X amount of X amount of stuff. We sold out within probably, we brought in like maybe 1500 pairs of jeans. We sold out within like two hours, you know, with just the retailers that we had. And we knew it, we knew that for us, we knew that, you know, the biggest, the only way you could, uh, you could expand is flipping. And we're not the type of people, me and him are both really smart. We're like, okay, the only way we're going to make a lot of money is not pay ourselves and keep on flipping the product. And so we just took every single, uh, we just took every single, um, every single flip, like selling out of 1500 units, whatever money we made, put it right back in. We were flipping it over and over until, until it got to the point where we took, we did 80 million. We probably, we probably did over eight to fucking 16 million in two years. That is pretty ridiculous. Yeah. And, and the thing is it was, you know, when we were doing this, we started multiple brands, multiple projects. We never said no to anything. It was like, okay, if you're a store, you had a relationship, you're willing to pay for a pay for product. We're going to do something for you, whether it's private label, white label, you know, this brand, that brand. So that's how we started off all these different brands. Yeah. And have you always stayed so hungry and motivated most of your life? Where does, where does a sense of motivation come from? Like did your parents preach you about entrepreneurship, about money? No, no. no. But the thing is, you know, I always close my eyes and I always think about being that poor kid out in Santa Ana. You know, my dad driving a 1978 Honda CVCC kids, uh, kids making fun of my parents and me for dropping off in a bucket. Um, and I, I still remember what it is to be poor. Like, you know, there's a lot of times where I look at all the things I have and I, I always like uh, close my eyes and like, yo, remember being back in 19, 1994 when kids used to make fun of you, when you didn't have shoes, you didn't have the clothes you had now, you didn't have the cars, you didn't have the watches, you know, it's like, you know, at any given moment, you got to understand that it could be a, get taken away from you. And so my hunger is to never fucking go back to that. You know, um, a lot of people like forget why they do things. And for me, it's just for security. I don't want my kids to ever have to want 
or wish, you know, like if they need something cool, we can get it. You want that. You want a PS five. Cool. We get the PS five. You want to go to this school. We'll go to this school. You want to go to this trip. We'll go to this trip. It's not like dad, I want this. Well, you know, I can't afford this. Maybe we could, maybe two years we can go on vacation. I can name every vacation uh, that we had as a family on one hand because obviously my parents just couldn't afford it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that is so powerful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to this day, my parents has never left LA. Really? They only went. <laughs> they only went to the Bay because I moved here, and they only yeah. went to like the East, like Virginia, because my uncle lives there. But they yeah. never seen United States. And do, do they have a passport? They do have mm-hmm. a passport, but okay. Well, I'm telling you this: once you're done with COVID, this thing's cleared up. You need to take your parents to Cabo on like an all-inclusive trip. They'll love it, dude. <laughs> I'll keep they'll love it. Yeah, they'll love it. So I guess I have a two-part question. Um, yep. You know, when you were starting out, uh, Embellish and Chris, how did you know? You know, there was an issue with you know people just just trying to find denim, but they couldn't. You know, pop, probably get to a mall, or maybe mm-hmm. it was like too expensive. Like, how did you know that there was a problem there that you wanted to solve? And then, how did you get into bigger real retailers like Zoomies and Jimmy Jazz and all of that? Uh, I mean. Um, um, off the rip, what we did was when we created Embellish, it was for a specific client, which was more a more a premium boutique. The pricing was like 100, 140. And then for us, after that, we realized that there was like a, there was a void for major uh, major distribution at a lower price point, less margins and stuff like that too. And the thing is, me me and my business partner, even before we had Embellish and stuff, I was already working with Zoomies. I mean, mm-hmm. I put and I put I put I'm King into Zoomies, Jimmy Jazz, and all those stores. So I've already had those relationships. So it was me picking up the phone. I mean, like, yo, you know, uh, yo, so-and-so and so-and-so, I have this brand. Um, what do you think? Everybody threw me an alley because I had relationships with almost all these stores. People don't realize the fact that, you know, it, it didn't happen overnight. It was years of me being a seller from 2005 all the way to now. And like, to this day, I still speak to a lot of my retailers, some of the majors, the small ones. Um, and I've always kept great relationships because they move all over. You know, a buyer from Foot Locker will end up at Zoomies or somebody from Urban Outfitters will go to Revolve or some Somebody that owns a, that was like a buyer is now the head of a brand. And so that's the reason why I get so many of these projects because I have such these good relationships, you know, brand owners are now, you know, running these big, um, these big uh, fortune companies like a Foot Locker or running like a, a Pack Sun or something like that. You know, people move all over the place and it's up to you for your relationships to keep it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, you know, business is done face to face and your relationships are your net worth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What would you say would be your advice if let's say someone's trying to get in, get their brand into retail, but they don't have those relationships to start off with? Oh man, honestly, honestly, it's so tough for me to even answer this question now, just because like, it's so easy for where I'm at. Um, in this day and age, I know that you can start off a brand by just social media, social media with Instagram. I mean, now, now these guys are popping off brands off of TikTok, which is like a platform I don't know shit about, you know, <laughs> but the thing is, uh, but the thing is at the, at the same time, it's, it's the vision that you put to uh, put in a brand, you know, like the biggest thing is this, if you have a brand that whatever the product is, depending on how you, uh, how, how it's perceived, the visuals, the product, the product shots, the models, if you make the brand look a lot nicer than what it really is and you tell a story around it and you create an audience. So that's it. There's various platforms that you can use from YouTube, Mm-hmm. YouTube, like I said, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook ads. There's just so many ways to build a brand now and you don't need to be successful off of just wholesale to have a brand. Like for instance, um, what I'm doing with Richie, Richie and Tanner now, you know, they're, 
you're crushing it DTC because he has his one point whatever million followers on YouTube yeah. and it's insane because he has a cult following you know mm-hmm. um and 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 it's ridiculous because you know he started off humble beginnings you know a couple of videos here and there and he just built his platform mm-hmm. wow that's mm-hmm. that's yeah. insane and we we know for a fact Chris you're a community man like you give back so much in the community and we wanted to acknowledge that you know mm-hmm. i think you you caught our radar when you were supporting the floods in vietnam yeah the whole apparel stuff well thank you thank, thank you so much for that um can you can you kind of talk, talk a little bit more about that too like the apparel brand and your partnerships with you know a couple other people andy and yeah yeah i mean i've i've done quite a bit of stuff um, in terms of like giving back like for me it's always been about doing something where it kind of made sense um and so for me and him it was us um ty over at uh uh, Ty over at Asians Never Die and Andy. Um, I had this whole thing where I was trying to push this narrative about, you know, the fall of Saigon. We were supposed to do a capsule collection around it. And so obviously me being from Santa Ana and Stussy is one of my favorite brands. I did a parody of that world tour shirt. And, you know, uh, what I did was um, all the cities in it were the top 10 cities where all the Vietnamese people immigrated to. And so, so it kind of tied around me being from Santa Ana and me being in streetwear from Santa Ana and Stussy. Um, and the thing was, um, we were supposed to push it for the fall of Saigon, but then COVID hit and then obviously we couldn't do it. And then Andy opened the Orange County store. And then I was thinking, I was like, damn, it's going to be exactly six months from now for the next fall of Saigon. And then now we have like this, uh, this whole, we have a reason to do it because of like, the floods in central Vietnam. So I was like, Hey Andy, let's just drop the collection. Obviously let's work with, uh, let's work with Ty them over there. Cause he has a platform and you know, what he does best is, you know, his shirts he has is just fun parodies. So it made sense. And so we just tied it together. Um, I'm pretty happy about the support we had just because not a lot of people understand about like the fall of Saigon and especially the fact that that's like, our flag, you know, mm-hmm. um, obviously there was a little bit of uh, pushback because not a lot of people know about that flag. Most people that look at that flag, they're like, what, what, what is that? Mm-hmm. But I mean, overall, you know, overall, that was like a couple of the pieces that I've done. You know, I've done a lot of other sponsorships for like sports. I run this kids pr- basketball program called leverage basketball Academy, where, you know, I got some sponsorships from a lot of my friends and a lot of stores and retailers. And we just run a free program from the age of four to seven, just teaching these kids like the basics of basketball from shooting, dribbling passing all that and so yeah my biggest thing is anything that has to do with sports so if you're if you're a booster or something and says hey man i want you to sponsor a banner for my son's soccer team i'm like all right here you know um um, and then you know i mean i just feel as if this once you get to a level where you've made x amount of money um what are you going to do next it's a legacy that you do you know how people perceive you what you want to do and for me it's just giving back you know it's like i have all the material items um I can't buy another car. I don't need another car. I don't need another watch. I don't need another house. But what I can do is like change someone's uh, vision or help a kid out or, you know, do my part, you know, because if I didn't, I'd be a piece of shit. Yeah. Really appreciate that. And, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier too, how you go into AHN, the Facebook group, and you just help out here and there and just respond to comments here and there. And we really appreciate that. We also know like, you know, listening to you right now is pretty crazy, you know, because mm-hmm. you're so successful. A lot of people out here listening want to be just like you, but you actually put in a lot of work to get where you are. And can you talk a little bit more about your crazy morning routine, how you wake up at five, get everything done? <laughs> uh, what is this like, man? How to, What's the backbone of your day like? Because you have family, you have kids, you know, you have a uh, wife, you have a busy schedule. So mm-hmm. what is that? You, you know what it is? I'm kind of, I'm, 
I have an OCD problem. Like I do anything I like, I'll collect from sneakers, cars, shoes, watches, or whatever it is. And the thing about me too, is I'm very into this whole thing about health. I like the last decade before I got married, I was like super chubby and fat at that at the time. I literally lost like 40 something pounds by just working out and just eating healthy. And mm -hmm. since I got to that, I'd never stopped. And so, you know, obviously when I had kids, I didn't want to stop. I didn't want to stop working out and just taking care of myself. And, but the thing is the only time I, I had time is early. And so for me, it's like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to work out on your time because I, I need to do what I need to do. So for me, it's like, you know, I got to wake up at five o'clock, go to the gym at five 30, get done at seven o'clock, come home, drive the kids to school, come back, shower, get into the office. I'm off. I'm in the office every day at eight 30. I'm out by four 30, but I'm like a robot. Like that's just me. I'm disciplined. Some of the things that I do best is be punctual. That's like my number one thing from, from the age of kindergarten to my junior year of high school. I never missed one day of school. I had perfect attendance. Like I dead ass. It wasn't until my senior year when I started going to raise and doing stupid shit. That's when I stopped missing school, you know, but from, yeah, from kindergarten to uh, junior year, you can ask my mom, you can ask my homies, you can ask my friends. It's like, yo, Chris is always at school, sick, sick, tired or whatever. He was always there. Yeah. I mean, um, as you know, we're in the middle of pandemic, but what kind of tips and advice do you have for other business owners going through hardships right now? Yeah. And did your businesses um, also take a hit during COVID-19 and did you guys have to pivot in any way? Oh man, for us, honestly, like the advice is very difficult to give because the thing is it depends on your company and what kind of business you're in, you know, like, honestly, if you were to ask me, what advice would you give me for, uh, for someone in food? I can't give you an advice, dude. Like that's like the hardest hit industry period. You know, it's like, yo, someone, someone in, someone in fashion can't tell you exactly what you're going to do with food because it's so difficult. You know, my business, I don't need to, I don't need to serve somebody one-on-one -on -one physically there, you know? Um, but for me, uh, for me, what my advice is this is just like just finding di different avenues of what you possibly can do. You got to oversee what your staff is, is about. So for me during COVID, we we were shut down for two months. We had to furlough the company. Um, everything was completely closed. And so for those two months, um, I couldn't ship out product. I couldn't take in product. You know, things were coming back in. We were, it was it was dark. You know, it was dark. We lost we lost almost seven uh, seven figures of revenue for two months. Um, but the thing is, I transitioned it and I went back to our uh, direct our DTC. And so I ran a bunch of Facebook ads. I want to give out shout out to all my guys that were running my ads. Uh, Hype well, Calvin and everybody too good people. Um, and I was able to make enough money where we kept the lights on, you know, we kept the lights on. Uh, we were able to, you know, pay a couple bills and this and that where we weren't underwater, which was, you know, I was fortunate for those two months. But the thing was the minute, um, it opened up, opened back up, I was smart about it. You know, I saw the inventory that I had rather than book out, we were just making smaller collections and pushing it out. And to be honest with me, uh, to be honest, I was very, very fortunate because like in my industry, uh, fashion and urban with the minute those stimulus checks hit everybody was buying everything and anything and i kept on taking in product i didn't stop taking in product so you know we were very fortunate the minute it opened we made all the money back and then some you know but it's not something i, I like talking about because obviously it's kind of touchy mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, absolutely right. Right. yeah yeah well really glad to hear that you know you're able to stay on top during this difficult time, especially when there's so many businesses struggling at this time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, we know that you were recognized by Forbes earlier this year. What was your thought process like at that time? I mean, I mean, the, the story about the whole thought process was, is like, damn, it actually really happened. I mean, yeah. 
the thing was, you know, we had an alley-oop from one of my buddies that owned a brand, but what it was, was they wanted to feature embellish as, uh, as one of the top brands, uh, for the summer. And so as I was talking to, um, as I was talking to the writer of the story, he started asking me questions about my business and I told him what, exactly what I did. And that's when he was like, yo, hold up, hold up, wait, um, you're independently funded and you did all this and you're not like, you've never been featured. I was like, no, I mean, I've, I've flown under the radar for the last X amount of years. And we had, we actually had a mutual friend that actually fact checked me and he's like, Oh, well, you know, Chris and their business, they potentially could be the next Mark echo. And I was like, damn, that's tight. And so after that happened, that's when, you know, they decided to write the article about us. And, you know, I mean, it's, you know, when you say, Hey, I made Forbes, it's, it's a big deal. You know, it's a, it's a really, really big deal. Yeah. It's a really, really big deal. But you know, like I'm honestly with or without the article, I'm just happy that I'm still here just inspiring. But you know, obviously the article kind of put gas on, you know, what we're doing out out here in Orange County because we've been doing it so under the radar. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll make sure with this podcast, you no longer run under the radar. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I mean, everybody was like, you know, I had a bunch of trolls out there saying, Oh, you hired a PR firm, you know, because like literally it was after that I did the Ben Baller podcast and then Ben Baller's podcast was probably bigger than Forbes, to be honest with you, because yeah. the amount of people that listened to his podcast and my DMS were just blowing up with other people reaching out. And honestly, I didn't know what I was getting into Ben, but shout out to Ben. Thank you, bro. But like, yeah, his podcast kind of elevated, uh, elevated my status as well. Um, so yeah, you know, people are like, yo, you're, you hired a PR firm to, to get you all these articles. I'm like, no, it's actually all organic. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. And I guess I do want to transition it back to your family a bit more. Mm-hmm. I mean, now that you're a dad, like what kind of values and, and, and advice are you, are you giving your kids about business? You know, do you want your kids to be business people or do you want them to just, just be happy? Like, what is your outlook on that? Honestly, like what I want my kids to do is have my, have access to what I have and do something with it. You know, like, like, do you know, like, like I have a couple of friends that, you know, their parents have a restaurant uh, industry. What they did was learn that knowledge and open their own restaurant. I'm like, your daddy has access to factories, fashion distribution. One of you guys better figure it out, start something, <laughs> use daddy's access and, you know, run with it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I always tell my kids all the time, I let them know how lucky they are and how fortunate they are. Like anytime they buy something, I was like, you know, dad had one Christmas gift, one gift, right? Mm-hmm. I was like, you know, dad had one pair of shoes for the whole year, right? And you just got to instill it to them. Like, yo, like I'll, I'll show them pictures of me when I was little. I was like, look, we used to eat on the floor with like newspaper. Look at you, you know? And so, you know, I have three kids. My daughter's seven, my son's six, and my other son is about to turn three. Um, they, they have no fucking world, no cares in the world. They don't have to worry about anything. They know when their next meal is coming. They know when their next toy is coming. Kids got Twitches. Kids got freaking TikToks. Kids got like their own cell phones. I'm at that age. I was lucky to have like, I was lucky to have like action figures, you know? Yeah. Phone. <laughs> yeah you know, and, and this day and age, this day and age, I, I look in their room and I'm just like, I'm like, damn, man, I wish I was a kid now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of which, House of Junior, that actually came, like the inspiration behind that actually came from your your family and your kids, right? Yeah, so House of Junior is actually named after my daughter, Jordan and Riders. That's where the J and the R oh, came yeah. from. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't, I can't take advice. I can't take the credit on House of Junior. That's actually all my wife. Um, oh, wow. The funny thing was this, it's like when I had Embellish and I had Chris uh, started, she was like, hey, I want to start a kid's brand. I'm like, dude, I'm too busy launching all these brands. She's like, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it by myself. And I'm <laughs> like, I'm not going to let you fail. 
okay, let's do this. Okay. So what we did was we took like all the silhouettes of all the, the, the styles that did really well for the men's side and we just kind of shrunk it down. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that was it. We, we were literally the first kids brand that made an elong tee, a mm-hmm. side zip, uh, a distressed denim. And we got picked up organically by Hypebeast on their blog, which kind of blew up. And then, I mean, you know, we've been on a roller coaster ride because like even talking about it now, um, it was in Barney's, you know, it was literally in Barney's. And that, that for me is like the biggest thing to see us sell through and say, Hey, you're, you got the number one brand in Barney's. You outsold Gucci, Dior, um, we want to do like a storefront, a storefront, a collab with you. So, you know, yeah. going on 34th and Madison and seeing House of Junior right in front with Disney, I was like, damn, we really, really made it. And this was all my wife's concept and idea. Yeah, that's amazing. And shout out to your wife too. And we heard <laughs> on other podcasts that uh, she gave the okay for the 40K. And we heard more <laughs> about her background too. You know, she came from an affluent family and you were just trying to take care of him and provide for her. So. Yeah, I mean, you guys did your homework. I like that. <laughs> I, did your homework. I like that. But yeah, I mean, she's my, honestly, she's she's the perfect person in terms of like supporting you. Like she's never, she's never looked down on any of my ideas. I've had some crazy ideas left field, but my vision of what we had, it's never been dumb, but without her support, we wouldn't be here today. I mean, like uh, I don't give her enough credit for like the, what she does in the background because like, when I go to work, I do all these uh, uh, these projects, ideas, and everything too. When I go to Asia, I'm handling production. She's at home, you know, still running, still running the show, you know, paying the bills, making sure everything's done while having a career. We never talk about this enough. But if I wasn't working, she could, she could support us both by her income. She's actually a realtor herself, and her family's got a successful broke brokerage out in Westminster, and they they make really good money as it is too. So like, I really thought I was about to marry rich. Oh, okay. yeah. I hope I marry Rich too. I'm looking at my insurance. <laughs> How did you two meet? How did you meet your wife? Oh, God. There was this club in Long Beach called V2O. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, V2O. And that thing was really, really big back then. Um, and we had mutual friends. And then I, yeah, I just hit on her at the club. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad it worked out. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really curious. Um, you know, how do you stay so inspired and just consistently keep up with the latest fashion trends in the urban market all the time? Now, how do you keep your eyes and ears open so often? I mean, I don't give enough credit to this, but you know, my business partner Lee handles the sales, uh, handles the design and production side. But you know, both, both him and I, we man, we study a lot. We lurk a lot. I look at brands. I look at concepts. I look at designers, you know, like, like there's a times where I'm just literally going through, you know, high end fashion house, because what we do is, you know, what, what we do is we study, uh, study the guys on top of us and we kind of break it down and make it affordable mm-hmm. to the fast fashion lane. And so it's a lot of studying. And my, my, my business partner, he's literally on his phone on websites, looking through clothes like all day, every day. And I'm on the same thing too. We know exactly what's going to go on, whatever hits in Paris, whatever hits in Milan, whatever hits for Dior, or YSL, whatever hits for Givenchy is going to, uh, eventually hit for the urban market or the streetwear guy so we always try to pay attention to like the fashion houses because it always trickles down yeah and you know this podcast will be air in 2021 what are your goals for this year oh man 2021 obviously this year we we've just launched richie lee last week um my goal for this year obviously and it 
my goal for this year, obviously, like a lot of people, like, I want to make this much money, this much money, yada, yada. My goal is just to stay in business, dude. Like at the end of the day, like people say, oh, I want to increase my business to 20 million, uh, 20%. I want to be able to do this and that. I just want to keep my employees happy. I just want to make sure everybody's getting paid. I just want to ensure that my business is straight where um, I'm paying my bills, paying my vendors and staying afloat. This is the first year we're going to be moving to our own warehouse. And what I want to do is make sure that, you know, my staff, my wife, my family, my team, everybody's taking care of and no one has to worry where the next check is. Like any bad move from me on a business side is going to affect them. So I just want to make sure 2021, I make the right moves so everybody everybody prospers, everybody wins, and everybody gets paid. Yeah. Wow, love, love that a lot. Love it. And so, Chris, we always ask our interviewees this one last question, but what is that one advice that you can give to an aspiring entrepreneur? No, uh, aspiring entrepreneur? Um my biggest advice is always to sit back and watch, you know, um, a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs, there's just so, so caught up in wanting to be a business owner, wanting to start a business. There's nothing wrong with working for somebody and stepping back and just learning. Um, dude, I was 30 years old before I started my first business, right? I'm 39 years old now. All right. So I'm, I was 30 when I started my first business. Um, I sat behind Andy. I sat behind all these other guys and I worked with them. I watched them make all these mistakes. And what I did was I took a piece of paper and pen and I wrote notes. I was like, that fuck up. I'm not doing that on my dime. That fuck up. I'm not doing that on my dime. That fuck up. I'm not doing that on my dime. So I learned from other people's mistakes. So when I was ready to be my own man and go on my own, I wouldn't do those mistakes. And so like I always say, learning somebody else's dime, be an intern, be an apprentice, um, just work for somebody else, somebody that you, uh, you idolize, somebody that you look up to, somebody that you want to be like. So, you know, just don't rush out there to be like, yo, I want to open this and that, you know, um, like I said, um, mistakes, mistakes, mistakes are lessons learned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, awesome. I love that. I love that you said that because I feel like a lot of people have this misconception that once they get to their older 20s or 30s, it's like, it's too late and I like shouldn't, you know, move ahead with That's it. the best years of your life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, th you think about it, all you need is one good year to match yeah. somebody's decade, you know? Yeah. Um, and so people are just so, uh, people are so in a rush, like a biological clock to be like, yo, at 30 years old, I got to be this 30, uh, 35 years old. I got to be this, yeah. you know, it's like, no, everyone works on their own time. And like, at the what are they saying? More, more millionaires are created at the age of 40 than, than any other age. Right. Is that, is that what they're saying? Yeah. Um, and so, like I said, you know, like I read your guys' forum and I see so many people always asking questions like, well, what would you do with $10,000 to do investments? I was like, nothing, go work for somebody, you know? <laughs> like, you know, I see some of these questions and like so many people are just so, so bent on being, being an entrepreneur, owning a business, being a CEO. It's, mm -hmm. it's honestly not cracked up to what it is. To I agree. It sucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for sharing your story. How can our listeners learn more about you online? And do you have any final remarks for our audience? Um, uh, I mean, you can learn about me by my social media uh, handle, Chris underscore the leverage. Uh, that's on IG. I don't do TikTok at all. Um, and another biggest thing is I, you know, I've done a lot of podcasts without, you know, giving out shout outs to like my team. Um, I do talk about my team a lot, but like the guys behind it from like Derek, Sean, uh, Kevin, uh, Brandon, Caitlin, G, uh, my business partner, Lee, I love him to death. Without these guys, you know, I wouldn't be here. They do a lot of the heavy lifting where I'm just the face of it. So like, you know, all you guys, you know, I love you guys to death and, you know, I appreciate all you guys. Wow. So awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Chris, yeah. for being the podcast. I mean, you really enjoyed it. Thanks so thank much. Thank you. Chris. All right. Bye. 
Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.